Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I have had a fascinating book cross my desk, Dreams of Arcadia, a novel by Brian Porter. And it's about a veterinarian, and it's written by a veterinarian, and it's set in Texas, and he is, in fact, a Texan himself, where he works as a veterinary pathologist. But luckily, he's also worked in private veterinary practice, because otherwise, the specifics in this book you could not make up. Brian, congratulations on your first novel and on bringing a, a slice of rural veterinary life to life in words, in a, in a way that's just so gripping. I, I thought, oh my God, this sh they should not let them have this book at veterinary schools because the people who go, I can't do that, that's too hard. Uh, it, uh, I imagine that you've lived some of this uh, or a great deal of it. I have, thank you. And thank you, Tracy, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, um, the book is, is based, uh, was strongly inspired by my own experiences when I was in private practice. And I was in practice for five years and um, the first practice I worked at was, was quite similar to the, the one described in the book. Were and you also so, yes. a kind of wet behind the ears, if you will, as to what to do with a cow in a pasture up to her belly in mud and having a breech birth? I mean, the, the descriptions of the things that the trouble that cows get into, it's like, oh, Lordy, here we go again. He's got a midnight call and he's by himself. That's the protagonist or, or hero of the book. Did those sort of things happen to you? Yes, they did. In fact, many of the experiences that, um, that Nate goes through are, happen to be, not, not all of them, but uh, some of them, and, and some are elaborated a little bit, you know, embellished a bit, um, but 
very similar. And yeah, I don't think vet school really prepares you. I mean, it prepares you well, but not for some of these situations that you can get into. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in the area, but not really around large animals that much. I was, you know, a town person. I grew up in right, town and right. didn't, wasn't in 4-H and, you know, didn't raise cattle or, or anything. And so I had some experience through working at a clinic uh, in the summer, but I wasn't as experienced as some, some people that go into next practice are with, with those types of animals. Because they've been on the back of the truck or the front of the truck with their dad or their uncle or even the local vet following along and watching from the time they were young, I imagine, right? It's just part of barn life, farm life. Exactly, right. And so, a, a yeah. bit of a shock to city boys or girls or uh, or vet students. It's, it's interesting because at one point I was interviewing a vet, I think about the topic of not one more vet, about the the emotional challenges of being a veterinarian. And she brought up something that I hadn't thought of, but your book, Dreams of Arcadia, brings it up in such a more dramatic way. And that was the fact that if you go to work in a vet clinic and you're pretty much fresh out of school, there's nobody shadowing you or vice versa. You're alone in the exam room and somebody brings in a dog or a cat or some other pet and you got to figure it out all by yourself. And the pressure of that, especially if it's an emergency situation, is extremely stressful and something you may not have become accustomed to as a vet student. But the stories, the, the episodes in Dreams of Arcadia are so much more life and death than that. Even the vet is kind of in a life or death situation often with these enormous beasts in some kind of distress. And the vet has to figure out how to solve the problem. Did you the, the character in the book, and I imagine you also, did depend a lot on the, the more seasoned veterinarian helping, but then at a certain point in the book, he just has to go out alone, and I feel so bad for him as a character. Yes, and I, you know, the lucky veterinarians that are straight out of practice, they, they go to a clinic where they have some mentorship. And, you know, they, the veterinarian there, or veterinarians there. Yes. And technicians can can really help them. And I was lucky the practice I went to when I got, came out of school. Both the owner of the clinic and the the, the main tech were extremely good, and and I learned so much from them in those first few months that helped me get through it. But yeah, you're right. It's you're on your own pretty quickly, <laughs> and you know have to do it. So it, it, I think I, yeah, I think the book really raises one's respect and admiration for veterinarians out in the field and that can even be with show horses or race horses because it's sort of the vet and everybody else is kind of maybe helping hold the beast but the vet has to have the guts and the courage and the confidence to know where to put a needle or where to put a knife and mm -hmm. just at one point the description of of how you had or the character I should say had to uh, tie up a cow's head so that it was bent way to the side so that the vein could be reached. I thought, wow, you, that they don't teach you that in vet school, do they? <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like the, the perfect solution, but I watched my own horses when I, when I rode competitively and when the vet would look for the vein in the neck, and they never cranked her head to the side, but that seemed, God, that would have been a great way to do it because otherwise it's a, not exactly hit or miss, but it's a little dodgy, right? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, they have a really large veins, so that is helpful. <laughs> yeah, that it, helps a lot. Explain the title, "Dreams of Arcadia," because I think it speaks to the theme of the book. Obviously, 
Correct. So as probably some listeners have, have heard, Arcadia is um, it's a part of Greece, but then in, in um, mythology, it was the, the home of the god Pan, the god of nature. And then in classical literature, it, it became sort of known as this kind of ideal yes. pastoral sort of rural place. Um, maybe not really truly attainable, but um, so that's kind of what Nate is looking for. He's, he's trying to find um, harmony and, um, you know, find a, a place where he can be at home and, and, and feel at home with nature. So. I guess that for me, what, what makes the book particularly interesting is the the concept of, and we've seen it in cop shows on TV or movies, this city-bound person whose life has unraveled in some way, in this case, his marriage, and they think, I'll go to the country, and that's where I'll find my roots, or I'll be grounded, or I'll be centered. And he's, this character struggles with that a lot. It is not an easy transition from being a city person to being out in the middle of nature, which is as unforgiving as anything can be. Nature is not your friend, necessarily. And I think that was that was an interesting way to deal with this sort of self-exploration on a mission to figure something out. And it's not a straight shot to, you know, eat, pray, love, and now, you know, everything sunsets, although the cover has a nice sunset. Did you ever have this feeling yourself, I'm going to get away from it all and be nature boy, so to speak? Yeah, I guess that's part of what reason I became a veterinarian, you know, I grew up reading James Harriet and, yes. and, you know, the, those stories are so wonderful. And just the idea of, of driving around in the country and, and being close to nature was very appealing to me. And so I did go into a mixed practice out of school, even though I wasn't, as I mentioned before, that, that comfortable with large animal work. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was, I guess I was seeking that in a, in a way. Did um, you find it? Um, I, I did to an extent. I mean, I really in, enjoyed my years in practice, but I, um, I did get a bit burned out after, um, after five years in practice. I went specialized in, in doing something a bit different now, but, um, so yeah, it was, it's a really hard life. It's and, a really hard yeah. life. And I guess that's what comes across in a kind of John Steinbeck way, the harshness of the situations and, the, the demands of nature and of these animals, and the fact that the other people around you, they're kind of hardened and calloused and tough too, and they're just like, you know, just get on with it, mister, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, let me, here, let me let me hold your hand, so to speak. There's, there's just yeah. a, kind of this tough country, and it's sort of how we think of cowboys or Texas. It's just what it is, you know, you just put on your boots, you put on your hat, and you go out and do the job. Right, right, yeah, yeah. The work itself is tough, but then it's, it's dealing with the the clients. You know, it's a whole another, <laughs> whole another can of worms. You know, and, and some are wonderful, and then others, like you said, are very demanding or are very, um, you know, expect a lot, and you know, it, it it can be really hard to deal with some some people. And what about, it's funny because I've always thought, well, it's the neurotic you know, sort of pampered owners of pampered dogs and cats who are the most difficult for vets to deal with because they are so, I'm a snowflake, I'm here, I matter, mm -hmm. you know, take care of me, the human, as well as the animal. And I had this idea, which this book completely has po poked a hole in, that the people, the ranchers or the, the people that have livestock are more appreciative of or 
uh, compassionate or empathetic to the role of the vet instead of, it turns out many of the clients don't pay. So then they still expect you to come the next time at 3 a.m. for a mess that they've mm. let go go wrong or sideways in a, usually birth situations, it seems like, or maybe an injury. And then there's a character who's really interesting that breeds the cat the calves too young. So they're not they're they're not ready to give birth and they wind up having these cesareans. Did was that something you've learned about since then or you knew about when you were practicing? No, I, I knew about that too. Yeah, sometimes, you know, they don't let the animals mature enough before they get bred and, and you end up with a a calf trying to have a calf basically. Yeah, kittens um, having kittens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's, that's really an eye opener too, because we imagine that livestock people um, are really mindful, just from the bottom line, the bottom dollar. But then again, the bottom dollar is the sooner you can get another cow made, the the quicker you you do make a buck. But maybe you lose the young calf in the in the process. I picked out. It's it's really interesting. It's a whole other way to look at how people and livestock live together or try to survive together and the brave vets that are out there trying to to catch the problems before they go completely south. I picked out a passage for you to read that I would love you to and I don't know that we need necessarily need to set up the setting although we could but it's more for people to get a sense of the style and the tone and the rhythm of the book. So you're welcome to okay. set the scene if you think okay. that will be helpful. Yeah, it's a little bit I guess. Um so Nate moves to to De Leon County where his practice is, and he he rents a house. It's a house out in the country, and it's an old farmhouse, and so it, it's quite rustic. And he has to adjust to that after living in Houston his whole life. And just some of the names that in this passage, just so you know who they are. Uh, Bruno is um, his his landlord owns a house. Roscoe is a dog he just adopted. Uh, Piccaninny's Cross. Right. Right. And and then Carolyn is his ex-wife. Got it. Okay. So the old farmhouse was livable, but just barely. It lacked air conditioning, so he slept on the couch under a ceiling fan. The linoleum in the kitchen and bathroom was cracked and coming up in spots, and paint was peeling on the cabinets and walls. A windmill and elevated storage tank supplied the water, and he had to wash dishes by hand. He spotted a mouse one night that week and needed to buy some traps. Later on, he went outside and checked the cattle, with Roscoe leading the way. Bruno's Herefords were a docile bunch, nine cows, a bull, and four calves. A couple of the cows looked geriatric, past reproductive age, but Bruno was apparently too soft-hearted to sell them. The pasture looked terrible from the drought, so Nate tossed out some hay and put half a bag of cubes in the feed trough. When he came back into the yard, he walked over to the back corner to a small shed sitting beneath a mulberry tree. He undid the latch and opened the door. Along the walls hung coils of wire, rusted tools, fan belts, chains, and other odds and ends. Two hoes, a shovel, and a post hole digger were propped in the corner, covered in cobwebs. A pushed lawnmower sat in the middle of the shed's dirt floor. Bruno expected him to keep the yard mowed, but the drought had taken care of the grass for now. Bruno hadn't said anything about watering, and there wasn't a hose or sprinkler anywhere to be found. That corner of the yard looked like a good spot for a garden. Nate once considered planting a garden in Houston, but Carolyn insisted on building a swimming pool in the only suitable spot. The girls enjoyed the pool for a while, but then the novelty wore off, and Nate grew to despise it for all the maintenance it required. 
After the divorce, the pool became algae-covered and mosquito-infested, and eventually had it drained and covered. He stared at the shovel standing forlornly at the, in the corner of the shed, and then he closed the door and latched it firmly. Maybe some other time. That's so great. It just shows the disintegration of his other life, which was about things and spending money and all those kind of statusy things. But also this place he's come and all the, the ways in which it's so rough around the edges and mm-hmm. ideas that he has that maybe some other time. It just It's very real. It is so not soap operatic or cheery unnecessarily cheery. It's just very real and very mm-hmm. genuine. And I really appreciate that about it, that it doesn't paint a rosy picture, but it paints a real picture. And I mm-hmm. think it's really valuable to have this look into another life and know that it's a genuine look. It's not a made-up one from on high, but you've walked the walk. Talk for a minute, if you would. So Dreams of Arcadia is is that book, and it's what we're talking about. Talk for a minute with a little bit of time we have left about being a veterinary pathologist. We just have a couple of minutes, but just if you could explain what you do, that would be very interesting. Sure. So I I teach at a veterinary school, and I, I do a lot of um, diagnostics and, and teaching. And so veterinary pathologists, um, those that do what I do, um, we look at both biopsies from from animals and then also we do the post-mortem exams or uh, necropsy or autopsy right. uh, whichever term you prefer and so we're looking at at tissues and, and trying to, to diagnose disease or also many times involved with research or some veterinary pathologists work for pharmaceutical industries and contract laboratories that are trying to prove the safety of right. drugs new drugs that are coming to market and uh, others are strictly in diagnostics, and, um, and so it's a pretty varied field. It's a really fascinating field. And Sounds really great. Sounds like a mm-hmm. wonderful thing that someone could pursue in veterinary school and does not involve being out in the middle of a bog in the middle of the night <laughs> or in the middle of a 100-degree heat. It yeah, sounds... the hours and the working conditions are much better. Yeah, it sounds much better. <laughs> Brian, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I congratulate you on writing this book. It must have been a real leap of faith, and the confidence you had in going out in the field, you must have had to bring to writing a novel for the first time. And you you do it with with great strength, and uh, you paint very vast brushstrokes of what that world is like, and it's really nice to be able to be invited to it. So thank you for writing the book. I hope you have another book in you. That would be great, and you'll come back with that one. But in the meantime, okay. Dreams of Arcadia is a wonderful success. All right. Thank you very much, Tracy. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. 
They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.